Hello, I'm Charlotte Kasseragi. Welcome to the podcast of Les Rendez-vous Littéraires Rue Cambon, a place where we meet to talk about writing, to talk about books. Let's meet women writers who have just taken their first step, the most decisive, the most difficult in the world of literature. How did their vocation call to them? What are their writing rituals? Who reads them and what do they read? I'm Erica Wagner, and it's my pleasure to introduce Rachel Eliza Griffiths and welcome her to Chanel's podcast of Les Rendezvous Littéraires, Rue Cambon. Rachel Eliza Griffiths is an artist who works in many modes. She is a poet, a visual artist, and now she is a novelist. Promise, her debut in prose fiction has just been published. Described by Marlon James as both magical and magnificent in advance of its release, Kirkus Reviews called it a gorgeous and heart-stopping account of the casual and calculated racism endured by a black family in 1950s Maine, as well as the love and strength that sustain them. The story introduces us to two sisters, Cynthia and Ezra Kindred. We meet them in what seems like an idyll in the last hot summer days of 1957. Gradually, the sources of their family's isolation within their community are revealed. Without a false note, Griffiths portrays the generational harm that led to the civil rights movement in the United States, a battle for equality which is still fought across the land. Publishers Weekly called it a stirring debut, admiring its portrayal of how dignity and resilience are passed down through generations. This stands as an affirmation of a family's fierce pride and hard-won joy. It's a wonderful, beautiful, moving book. Griffiths may be new to novel writing, but her creative experience is broad and deep, her recent hybrid collection of poetry and photography, Seeing the Body, was selected as the winner of the 2021 Hurston Wright Foundation Award in Poetry. And it was the winner of the 2020 Patterson Poetry Prize and a finalist for the 2021 NAACP Image Award. She is also a recipient of fellowships from many organizations, including Cave Canem Foundation, Kimbilio, the Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center, the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation, and Yaddo. Her work has been published in The New York Times, The New Yorker, Tin House, and in many other publications. I'm so delighted to be able to welcome her to our podcast today. Welcome, Eliza. Thank you so much, Erica. I'm delighted to be with you today and to talk about Promise. <laughs> start by asking you about your beginnings as a writer. When did you start writing? Did you start with poetry? And perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how your writing and your visual art fit together. Thank you. Um, I always was a writer since I was four or five years old. This was the thing that gave me the most joy. Um, and they were always connected for me, writing and creating images. Um, these things were um, inseparable for me. And so I remember very vividly being you know, four or five, six years old 
and um, the pure kind of joy and wonder and delight and scribbling without really having language, but trying to have it, um, scribbling stories, listening to people around me, making um, drawings and paintings for my family and my friends. This is something that I've carried with me for many, many years. And so um, I've always seen writing and visual art as completely symbiotic and connected for me. Um, and that happens everywhere now, particularly now with the work that I'm making. That's fascinating. Who are the writers you consider influential in your reading and your writing life? I've, I've heard you mention many writers, including Auden, the American poet, Joy Harjo, Lucille Clifton. Can you tell us a little bit about what their work means to you? Or if there's other writers you'd like to mention, please do. Sure, absolutely. This is something I always love speaking about. I feel as though um, as I look back through my past and my development as a writer and visual artist, um, I have these different kinds of territories that are attached to different moments in my life. And I often feel that certain writers uh, found me or revealed themselves to me as I was developing as um, a writer and as a person and as an author. You know, when I was young. Um, I loved fairy tales. I loved comic books. I also turned to the books that were on my mother's bookshelves, which would have included Gwendolyn Brooks, Alice Walker, Toni Morrison, Maya Angelou, Toni Cade Bambera, Gloria Naylor. And those books helped raise me. They helped me find um, answers to things I couldn't ask my mother, for example, or um, things in the Black tradition that I would kind of say, well, why does this mean this? Or why does this happen? I could go to these bookshelves of my mother's and be really excited that I knew I was a writer and that I was going to get to join that conversation. Then I feel like as I was kind of in middle school, you know, poetry and, and kind of coming through high school, I loved poetry. I loved Sylvia Plath. I loved Nikki Giovanni, Neruda, Auden. Um, you know, there's so many because the sounds and the rhythms. And I was very much into and still am music very much influences me. I'm a very lyrical author. I'm a very lyrical kind of photographer. I loved reading passages of my favorite writers aloud, Lorca, for example, and just falling in love with the ocean of meaning and sound and feeling not alone in the presence of these writers. When I moved to New York to be a writer, I would say, I liked to read lots of stories and memoirs about other people moving to New York to become writers. I fell in love with James Baldwin in high school. And once I um, fell in love with Baldwin, of course, that connected me um, to Zora Neale Hurston, for example, and the Harlem Renaissance writers. And then, of course, that lineage connected me to the Black arts movement. And so there's a Mary Baraka and Jane Cortez and 
our living elder, Sonia Sanchez. And so this became this kind of kingdom where I could move around and never let go of any of these authors. I could just continue to accumulate and be able to go backward or forward or in any direction and return to them as a different person. One of my most... um, most, most meaningful writers, of course, is Toni Morrison, who I've read since I was quite young. And so reading writers like Morrison and Nabokov and Tolstoy and Faulkner, gosh, there's so many that come into my mind. I really like to read in a global way and think of the world. I haven't even included some of the wondrous, wondrous South American writers, of course, Marquez and Mario uh, Vargalosa, Gabrielle Mistral, her poetry just came over me like a hurricane. And then there are artists too, I say, that would match or um, be closely associated. The paintings of Joan Mitchell are as necessary to me as writing, for example, and um, the current universe of Black visual art, which has always been in play, but even more so these days, just descends on me and it is a vocabulary and a language. So, um, you know, as I came through my graduate years at Sarah Lawrence College, I then began to read a bit more seriously because the stakes were higher in terms of what I might need to know or do or um shift in my own knowledge of what it might take to be and live as a writer. And so I think perhaps I read things more seriously or more closely. And then there are wondrous writers who are just, they're just fun. And I very much respect Colson Whitehead and Walter Mosley. And uh, I mean, there's just so many, Jasmine Ward and just, there's, there's such a such a wonderful, wonderful village of writers. I can't uh, leave out Chinua Achebe, for example, if I'm going toward Africa and Wale Shoyenka, and then I can head over into the East to some very, very beloved writers um, that mean so much to me and are intimately part of my own life and how my days um, are spent these days. But I guess to be um, more succinct, is that I am voraciously and assertively reading memoirs, um, almanacs, mythologies, anything that I can to, um, you know, to be excited and questioning and investigative about our world and our lives. Um, that's what I will say for now and stop there. I, I think what you so wonderfully convey in the richness of that answer is how much reading can be to us. You know, you started with going to the books on your mother's shelves that would kind of answer questions that you couldn't ask your mother. And so you discover worlds that relate to you specifically, but then you go out into much wider worlds. We read books once, we return to them, they develop with us as we develop. It's a hugely rich and constantly renewable experience. Let's turn a little bit to the beginning of Promise. The novel is set in Maine, in the northeastern United States. Why and how did you choose this location? I think when I was younger, um, 
I had time, particularly when I was in graduate school, to actually take several trips and kind of journeys very, very far north. And I was always curious to imagine what my life would be in these very gorgeous, but very sparse and isolated locations. You know, the novel takes place in 1957 and goes forward into 1958. My mother was born in 1954. And one of the things that um, I'm interested in, particularly with Promise, is to think of the world my mother would have been born into. She was born in Washington, D.C. and the nation's capital. But being up in Maine, I was both attracted and almost overwhelmed and bewildered by the landscape. I began as I was writing the novel, I could have easily set promise in the American South that some of the energy, particularly um, about, you know, the, the cusp and real gears turning of the civil rights movement to have the novel then be in the South would feel quite organic. But there was something that has um, haunted in a beautiful way, a sense of freedom that the North is all often, um, it's kind of often framed in that way, New England and the American North. And it feels very fluid and open to to kind of coming into it and trying to uncover perhaps narratives that we wouldn't used to be thinking about in that location. So for me, it was, what if I were to set my story in this kind of remote, sparse, um, almost kind of abolitionist kind of setting versus You know, it could be very easy for me to say, well, this happened in Alabama or Mississippi. I wanted my readers to have to do something to say, this happens in the North. This took place in the North. And during these particular years, let's let's get get away from the center of um, the South, perhaps, or Mid-Atlantic and go in a really, really kind of desolate, different place where so much things were happening with fishing and trade and market and different things and to set like a black family there what would they have had had access to during the years how would they have been connected to black people um the civil rights to narratives what would that struggle and narrative been for these kinds of, of people and families and so salt point doesn't exactly exist uh technically you won't find it in a map, but it is a composite of several beloved sea villages and kind of New England spaces that allowed my imagination, the space and the energy and kind of tension that it would have probably been more difficult for me to have had if I had placed the setting of the novel somewhere more familiar to me is what I might say. That's really fascinating. Tell us about the publication process for this novel. One thing I'll ask you is you have described it as a love letter to your mother, who you've been talking about in the course of our discussion. I know you lost her in 2014. What did it mean to to write this for her, I'll say? Thank you for that question and, and allowing me to think of my mother right now. Um, which happens a lot of in my day. You know, I um in 2014 when my mother passed away, um 
I have been kicking around drafts and versions of this story in my head for for some years at that point. And I think the clarity of my mother leaving me oddly allowed me to kind of step out on a ledge where I couldn't hide behind my mother or her imagination or her ideas or what she endured in her life and to really question what I myself might be made of as a daughter, as a black woman, as a writer, what was most essential to my imagination. And for me, it was and remains that complicated and glorious bond of uh, black womanhood, particularly queer black womanhood, particularly blackness and the black imagination. I also wanted to pivot away from writing a kind of novel that would be traumatic for me and traumatic for readers after witnessing for many, many years the trauma that my mother endured to raise her children to live in this in this country. And even though there are many traumatic moments in Promise, I feel that I felt very vigilant that there would be an unwavering presence of love and care and intelligence, and and that there is a history of that that cannot be overshadowed from reckless kind of writing. In 2014, I, I kept saying to myself, you write this novel or you never write it. I was publishing as a poet at that time. I was continuing my practice as a visual artist, but I, I just couldn't let go of the story and I felt it couldn't let go of me. And so I really sat down in that year and it was raw for me. I felt skinless, I felt motherless. And in the writing of Promise, I could connect with my mother in the complexity of the generational lineages that are shared between mother and daughter, particularly between and amongst Black tradition and Black family, and to question those things, hold those things, and then reject some of those things, um, understanding that the time I live in and the time that is to come is, is shifting so quickly and changing, and yet I am not willing to discard or condemn or judge all of this rich past and history and culture that allows me to sit here now as an author with a debut coming out. I think that's some of what I would say. And I think in the space and name of love for my mother, for my sister, for all the people who have raised me, I felt like I was strong enough to trust myself finally as a writer at a very mature age as well, and say, this is the story I want to read, and I'm going to write it. And I can say um, with joy that there is love here. If the person reading this story and engaging these characters is willing to see that in Black people, and that we are deserving of that. And there, of course, as you know, and we've talked about a greater conversation that continues to happen in America, in the American imagination about the value and necessity and humanity of Black people and the genesis and the and how necessary they are to the America we are, we are living in. So I, I wanted that to be present too and to look that directly 
in its face. That's a wonderful, rich answer and leads me just to ask you briefly, because in a sense, what you were describing just then, much of it is a kind of private experience, private thoughts. But then, of course, you learn that a book is going to go out into the world and be published. Just tell us briefly about what that was like to learn that this was going to be going from that raw experience to oh. being something... <laughs> we all have the the pleasure and privilege of reading. I'm laughing now with joy, but many, many a day, I was on the floor in tears. I was screaming. I was just, I went through it all. It feels at this moment completely exhilarating. Um, and yet there are days where I'm just nauseous for no reason. This is so important to me. Um, it's such a raw sight of vulnerability to me. Um, and at the same time, I know I've done my work. I wrote the best book that I have the capacity to write at this time in my life. Um, I feel grateful because I do feel like there is a very beautiful grief and letting go of my characters, letting go of my discipline for this project, and also reminding myself that this didn't happen overnight. This took years of um, not giving up. This took years of trusting that my voice and this story would matter to other people. And now I am overjoyed and anxious <laughs> to share it with others and to know I have to step back and let, let Cynthia and Ezra, I have to let them go. I have to write the next book, you know, and keep, keep working as an artist, because that's the living as a writer, is to keep going. We will come to the next book and the keeping going shortly. <laughs> now I'll ask you to just read us the opening of your novel. The day before our first day of school always signaled the end of the time Ezra and I loved most. Not time like the clocks that ticked and rang their alarms every morning, we knew that time didn't really begin or end. What we meant by time was happiness, a careless joy that sprawled its warm, sun-stained arms through our days and dreams for eight glorious weeks, and our teachers arrived back in our lives, and our parents remembered their rules about shoes, bathing, vocabulary quizzes, and home training. More than anything, we prayed that the air would remain mild for as long as possible, mid-October even, so that we could retain some of our summer independence, free to roam the land we knew and loved. We weren't yet grown, but even the adults could pinpoint when time would tell us we would no longer be young. We mourned summertime's ending and made predictions about autumn and ourselves, mostly repeated all the different ways that summer was more honest than the rest of the year. It was the only time we could wear shorts and cropped tops with little comment from our mother. Ezra and I were allowed to walk nearly anywhere we wanted. 
In other seasons, we needed permission even to walk to the village docks. And the eating, how we could eat. Mama loosened her apron strings about salt and sugar. Each day, it felt like we were eating from the menu of our dreams. Fresh corn, ice cream, sliced tomatoes with coarse salt and pepper, chilled lobster, root beer floats, watermelon, oysters, crab and shrimp salads, fried chicken, homemade lemon or raspberry sorbet, grilled peaches, potato salad, and red popsicles. So delicious. Makes me very hungry to hear. (laughs) Thank you. So now I want to ask you a little bit about your routines of writing. Are there differences for you between writing poetry and prose? Do you have a strict daily routine? Do you listen to music? Do you not? Tell us a little bit about what happens when you sit down at your desk. I love this question, Erica, um, because it always changes. I never have a static response. I think the work at hand will determine the atmosphere that is required, which is to say, working on promise um, took me about seven years of writing um, or drafting and certainly thinking. I really began to work on promise just before the pandemic. And so those days were quite different for the entire planet. Working during that time on this novel, you know, I kept very strict hours. I tried to control as much as I could of what I would allow myself to hear from the outside world and the the terror and the panic that we were all encountering. The novel was a space then where I could have some control and there was a world that I was making and I could kind of be in there. If I'm writing poetry, I must always read aloud while I'm working. As I mentioned earlier in this conversation, I'm very lyrical. I think my ear uh, is one of my best editors, and I would apply that even to writing prose. I was a bit sensitive to the music that I listened to, but at the same time, it was really beautiful for me to create historical playlists. So I'm looking at the music that would have been playing in Cynthia and Ezra's kitchen and thinking of the music that was playing in my kitchen as I grew up. So, you know, there's Sam Cooke, there's Otis Redding, the Supremes, you know, there's, you know, Motown is beginning to start in the 50s. There's Little Richard, there's classical music, there's Nat King Cole. I was listening to all those kinds of things and watching films from that historical time also as I was working on my novel. You know, what would the ashtrays look like? What would the lamps look like? What could my uh, kindred family afford or aspire to living up in a very um, kind of salty and working class community? What would that have been? Do you have a first reader? How do you know when something is ready to go out into the world. I will say right now that my partner is usually my first reader. I tend not to have uh, a circle of readers. Of course. 
there are some very beloved writers to me who I may ask them a question or I may ask them to look at something, but there's a real privacy and intimacy and respect of time when I'm working. So when I'm really starting something, I'm not showing uh, it to anybody, including my partner. I just need space with the material. I need to hear my voice. I need to understand the style. I'm very shy to even mention I'm even working on something. But I would say now, if I feel nervous about something, I will ask my partner to read it. I will be very clear and precise with him about what kind of feedback I want, um, because I think that's also important. Um, And there's a lot of joy and humor and um, really wonderful conversations about writers we respect or craft or different things. And that all goes into then how I will bring my eyes back to my work. I think my relationship with my editors are very, very private and important to me. And if I have that one reader, particularly who is like my editor or my agent, that's enough for me to say, okay, it's not all in my head and it's working and it's making sense and I can go forward. And I think it's more about that, that I, I need to have a sense that it's coming through in the way I intended it to, to someone else. Just quickly, and maybe this is an impossible question to answer, but can you say whether there's something that's hardest for you in the process of writing? And is there something that you most enjoy? I most enjoy the moment when things are really working in a story or a poem and I kind of can disappear into these channels of imagination and rhythm and um, make contact with very intimate parts of myself, which then connect to a bigger world and other readers and writers and, and beings around me. I think that is something I, I always want to have and always want to be attentive to. Sometimes depending on the project, it can be hard for me and this too may be a disadvantage of working across a, a genre is that I have to take quite a bit of time to really decide I'm going to continue working on something. I think I'm grateful that because I work in visual art as well as poetry and prose or even do collaborative projects, I really don't mind failing several times before I get it to where it's going to move and that I'm going to commit to it. And then once I commit to it, I'm there and I'm not letting it go until I can get it to a point where it's going to be as finished as it can be and I need to let it go. I am very private and introverted. So when it comes to letting go, like at this moment, (laughs) to tell you the truth, it is very, very hard for me. And that feels very, very exciting too. Um, I never worry of like, oh, I won't be able to write anything after this, or I won't be able to make anything. And this was the only thing for me. That doesn't happen for me. And I, I'm relieved um, because I need to just keep my mind absorbed with thinking and listening and getting myself immersed in all of the wondrous art, wondrous art and things that are being made around me whether it's film or visual art or music or, you know, standing around with farmers or just going into different cities and worlds and and being grateful that I don't know anything about these places, but that it will come and help the next work. I'll ask you a 
few questions just to end about, again, this book going out into the world and being received. Um, it's just about to be published as we're speaking, but what sort of response have you had from from early readers? It's been miraculous. Um, I'm smiling over here like I am five years old <laughs> because it feels that way. Um, when you work on a project and you put so much of your, your life and your imagination into it, you just really hope that you, um, you know, that, that, that it will be reflected in some form back to you. And I feel that what is being reflected back to me is dazzling. I am grateful for, you know, the galleys going out and people I, who don't know me, who are not biased, who are just very good readers coming back, being very moved. I am grateful for the many notes I've received that people cried. Like there's been a lot of crying going on, but good crying. I wake up and I kind of pinch myself and I wake up kind of smiling sometimes, which is such a nerdy thing to say. Um, I'm sitting in such a deep space of feeling fortunate and glad for everything that comes and everything that has already come prior to the book really being on shelves yet just feels, you know, it, it's so lovely. Um, it's so sweet for a moment to say yes, to feel happy because happiness feels so episodic most of the time. But I, um, I'm happy for the journey I hope this book and story and characters will have. And, you know, I just... It feels so immediate, if, and it's and that's fine. That's really, really great for a writer who took seven years to write a book. So, that's wonderful. That's just wonderful. Is there a particular impact you wish Promise will have? I realize, of course, that's not in your control. Books go out, readers meet them, but what do you think that fiction can achieve in affecting people's lives? This is a question that I will be thinking about for some time, and I think. You know, I think you're right in how you frame the question. I hope that the story um, of the lives of these characters and what they endure and promise will allow readers to perhaps detach from a very hyper-stimulating environment all around them and to remember the space that reading and books and stories um, has weight and has meaning and has power, that that is a private space, but it is also the space of a citizen in a way. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, you know, as you know, I mean, the fury of book banning in this country now is something that I'm constantly thinking about, but the imagination cannot be banished. And what I would like to hope for readers is that they remember these characters, they remember their words, they become um, ways for readers to look at their own lives or people they've known or things they may encounter that maybe they wouldn't have seen before, that maybe they wouldn't have listened to before, maybe the versions of American histories and narratives that were given to them they will say, well, I read this book once and it, you know, there was this girl and this happened though. Or, you know, um, this book is asking me to do something different and to think differently. This book is not about judging me. This book has compassion. It feels like a human 
being wrote this book because she cared and does care. And I think I think that would be powerful to me that that the book isn't really about me and that it's bigger than me. And that that is what the reader and I'm a reader step into that current and all of the books that I continue to return to and to look forward to that have yet to be written. That's a wonderful answer. It's worthy of joining all those books on that eternal shelf. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'm now going to close with a few questions that we always ask our guests, so I will fire them at you. What is the most surprising thing you have learned from being a writer? That I don't have to be so lonely. Wonderful. What would people be surprised to learn about you? I think people would be surprised to learn that I I have a very um, well-developed sense of humor. I think I write very seriously, and as a poet, I'm very intense. So there's a part of myself that, you know, when I'm on the page, there's a certain side of me that's so private and personal that that's ready there. But in my day-to-day, you know, life, I'm cracking a lot of jokes and wanting to hear people's laughter for the sake of, like, the fact that we have laughter matters everywhere. So I would say my sense of humor What is your idea of perfect happiness? It would be immediately to take the word perfectly away from it, the word happiness. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, I've gone through so much in my life. I would probably dig around under the word happiness and pull out the word joy, which is joy is what I um, carry with me. I like that. And offer to others, but also anticipate that if, people had the time um, and and care and space to see where joy is inside of their own lives and their stories and memories, it's there. So I think joy is something that is part of almost like my mindfulness and that it is a constant thing where, you know, rubbing my dog's belly makes me happy, getting um a starred review about my book these days makes me happy. But there's a deep joy waking up, looking around and saying, I love this woman I'm becoming. Wonderful. What advice would you give to anyone who wants to express their creativity? Anyone's expressing their creativity or is interested in um, trying to figure out how to express their creativity I would probably say a dull thing that it's already happening. And what I would also say is that if they're already wanting and they have a longing to express their creativity, that means they need to find the tools and mediums that help them um, shape that desire into something that sustains them, that is centered in their life and cannot be um, bought or surrendered or manipulated by others, including themselves. And so I would ask them to like really realize and be mindful where you are, where you come from, what matters to you, what you eat, and that this need to express creativity is also about every person's humanity and that um, there will be no moment where you are only like you've reached it. 
because you don't. You don't just reach it. You have to live it. And maybe that's the thing that I would say is that you are living it. The question then is how, how can you live it and also get everything else that you need to have so that you stay with us and stay alive and that power in you um, grows and becomes something that no one else can have. In one word, how would you like to be remembered as a writer? Tough question, I know. Let's say luminous today. I also like the word intimate. But today I'm feeling so bright and excited. But let's say a different kind of luminous than the easy ways we come to the word luminous. A hard-earned and well-deserved luminous writer. Wonderful. And finally, what would you like your second novel to look like? Can you say anything about that? Yes. I mean, I, you know, I am someone who is always writing. Otherwise, no one around me can suffer and deal with me. So what I can say about what I'd like my second novel to look like is um, that it is, again, engaging spaces in history and um, exhuming and extracting a new narrative and a new voice that is startling and troubling. So I think for me, whatever novel I write next will again return to history and memory as it lives in my identity in this country. And that you will be looking at things you think you know, but I will be looking beneath those things. That is just wonderful. What a marvelous conversation this has been. You are so thank great you to so talk much. to. Thank oh, you. thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Rachel Eliza Griffiths, for joining us on the Rendezvous Literaire podcast. It's what? been such a pleasure talking to you. And I hope, I think I know, we'll have the chance to talk again soon. I can't wait to read that next book. Thank you so much, Eliza. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rendezvous Littéraire Rue Cambon podcast. To discover more about it, you will find images, links, and references on the Chanel website. À bientôt!